Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate podcast, episode 27, a conversation with president of the Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition, Ben Scott. I was really looking forward to this one since my very first days in climbing were in Fort Collins and around Northern Colorado. It was a great time chatting with Ben and reminiscing quite a bit on the places where I got my start. Uh, The nostalgia was kind of overwhelming during this whole conversation. It was a lot of fun. But before we get into it here, I need to clarify one thing that came up in the episode before I start receiving death threats, people knocking on my door and walking down the street with pitchforks and torches, uh, seeking my head on a stick. (laughs) Totally kidding, way over-exaggerating here, but a little bit into the conversation, Ben tells me that his first road trip was out to the new, and perhaps surprisingly, he spent a lot of time in the new, and perhaps surprisingly, he's never been to the Red River Gorge. And I kind of defaulted to this uh, thing that was happening to me when I was planning my Red River Gorge trip back in May of 2019. So many people kept telling me, people are going to call blasphemy here, but I had several people tell me, just drive past the red and go to the new. It's way better. (laughs) And I don't think I I quite uh, justified my trip to the red in our conversation here. So I just want to say it now. I had a really good time in the red and I am really looking forward to the next opportunity to get back out there. And I just want to clear the air here before anything goes south. Uh, Everyone that I've met that uh, considers the red, uh, like their local spot, their backyard, wonderful people. Everyone I met in Kentucky was awesome. The climbing of course was amazing and I've never been so humbled by the biggest jugs in my life. You know, I can't wait to get back and fall fall off them again. So I just wanted to clarify that one point real quick that I really like the Red River Gorge. Okay, now that that's out of the way, a little bit more about Ben. Ben is a very creative, multifaceted individual. He's a graphic designer by trade. He has served as president of the Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition for a little over a decade now, has authored several guidebooks for the area, and makes, I think, I don't know, geez, it's got to be like several dozen. He's made several dozen short films documenting the climbing around Northern Colorado. They're awesome. I linked it up in the show notes. Take, Take a little bit of time to check some of those out. They're very very well done creative uh it just gives me a warm feeling watching them because it's like that's where i kind of grew up climbing didn't grow up i guess but that's you know that's where i climbed for for a number of years so it's awesome watching these things he does a great job so during our conversation we get a bit into his climbing history his experience with the northern colorado climbers coalition their challenges issues accomplishments current happenings etc his motivation for guidebooking hashtag guidebooking and why we consider it a form of advocacy that was a really cool part of the conversation i really enjoyed and then we wrap up talking about his films uh for a little bit one thing that came up 
during our part about talking about the Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition is was about land manager relationships. And we talk about the Forest Service quite a bit. Uh, about, he says about 90% of the climbing resources around Fort Collins, Northern Colorado are on the forest. And so with his experience, his longtime experience with the NCCC, uh, and working working on the land and stewarding the land and everything, I, I figured they had a pretty strong rapport with the Forest Service. However, you know, I went into asking that question about the relationship with this agency, and it was he gave me the complete opposite answer of what I thought I was going to get. And it's not that the relationship with the Forest Service is bad; it just seems to kind of cease to exist, and it's just very uh, very flat. And despite them reaching out to the Forest Service several times over the years, and comparatively speaking, their rapport and relationship with other land managers around Fort Collins, uh, CPW, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, who manages uh, Lori State Park, the city of Fort Collins, Larimer County. I mean, they, they crush it with all of those guys. And so it was, it was really surprising to me to hear that, yeah, the relationship with the Forest Service just isn't really there right now. And we're going on almost episode 30, and I think, you know, any episode that we talked about land management and relationship with land managers, it's always been really positive and really good. And I think I just got a little complacent and naive, I guess, about that, about this topic that a lot of LCOs have got themselves well established and a strong relationship with their local land managers. And I think that's just not always the case. And I kind of like lost sight of that a little bit. And it is going to be different from place to place, from crag to crag, and land manager to land manager. I mean, it's the same agency, but there are different different uh, d- district rangers in each of these forests, on each of these forests. So it, it could vary. And I'm going to keep that in mind going to further conversations because I kind of set up the question for Ben, expecting him to say like, yeah, those guys kick ass and we've been working with them for years. And I, I, that just wasn't the response I got, which was surprising. So just a little food for thought that I'm going to carry forth into coming episodes and maybe for yourself as well, if uh, that's something that's on your mind. So at the end of the day, I mean, Ben's passion for Northern Colorado rock climbing is truly unmatched. And I'll think, I think you'll pick up on that pretty quickly here. So I've been rambling on here. So without any further delay, let's get into it. Enjoy my conversation with Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition President Ben Scott. <laughs> so let's see, you moved to the Front Range in '98. Was that straight to Fort Collins? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I went here for uh, school initially and did CSU for a couple years, and then decided I wanted to pursue graphic design. Did a degree at the Art Institute in Denver. I work full time for a printing company. Yeah, but I do a bunch of like freelance work on the side and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, right on. What's uh? So what's your what? Yeah, what's the climbing history like? Being from Ohio, I'm sure you didn't discover it until until you got to Fort Collins. Is that right? Oh yeah, um, yeah. Climbing was. Uh, I mean, we were always going out west from Ohio to go on ski trips, so. I always enjoyed being in the mountains and then at some point uh, we did like a road trip out west and me and my dad took a three-day climbing course with um, Exum Guides in the Grand Tetons mm-hmm. and uh, actually our our uh, guide was Chuck Pratt for like the first two days, which of course meant nothing at the time, but <laughs> years later it was pretty significant for sure. Right. But uh, yeah, so we did this climbing class and then got the bug a little bit and came back to Ohio, did some top roping stuff and then took a Colorado outward bound course which was like a 30-day mountaineering course when I was like 15 or something like that. Yeah, I met a bunch of the guides, and they were like full-time rock climbers who were just doing a little summer job, and then they were going back to the valley to like climb the rest of the fall, and that was a pretty mind-blowing experience to me that like they weren't career-oriented people. like They just wanted to go rock climbing. <laughs> so I came back and top roped some more, and then I met my friend Jason Terry um, in Ohio, and he kind of, like, introduced me to, like, sport climbing and bouldering. He took me on my first, like, road trips and 
stuff like that. And I was kind of down the rabbit hole from there. <laughs> Where was that first road trip? Uh, the New River Gorge. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's funny. I've spent a lot of time at the New, but I still haven't been to the Red over all these years. You know, I, I went to the Red. Let's see. This is almost, this is about a year and a half ago. And everyone's like, just just keep on going to the New. Just keep, just drive by and just keep going. Everyone, not everyone, but several people I've talked to, like, the New is better. Just go to the New. <laughs> yeah, I'm biased, but I don't, I don't have a good opinion because I haven't been to both. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're primarily a sport climber, is that right? Uh, primarily a boulder, honestly. Okay, right. Um, that's what I spent the majority of my climbing life doing. But sport climbing is pretty darn close too. Bolted a lot of routes and put up a lot of sport climbs over the years. So. Yeah, we'll definitely touch on uh, development up in Poudre Canyon, Fort Collins area here in a little bit. Um, but I'm just I'm just really psyched to chat with you tonight. Fort Collins and Northern Colorado is where I got my start climbing, and so I'm feeling a bit nostalgic right now. Nice. <laughs> I remember an event. I think it was a fundraiser of sorts when you guys premiered the scene that uh, Chuck Freiberger film. Yes. And this was back probably 2011 or 2012. That sounds about right. Yeah, somewhere in there. I can't recall the venue, but it was a, it was a bar on college on College Ave, uh, and they had three dollar mugs of Five Barrel on like Tuesdays or something, like right <laughs> in the middle of the week. I cannot remember the name of the place. Does that ring a bell? Uh, kind of. I can't remember. It would have been like, ooh, I would want to say like the Aggie or something, but I'd have to go back and look at my notes. Yeah, yeah. I, the name's escaping me. I, I want to say stakeout, but I know that's definitely not right. I I cannot remember. I don't know, man. We've had a lot of events over the years. <laughs> they all kind of blend together, but I definitely remember that movie because I did a lot of like graphic design work and stuff like that for that movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, they got a whole whole uh, section there on the new with like Pat Goodman and Matt Wilder. And and uh, I actually watched it again recently. It was, yeah brought me back brought me back so that was like my first introduction to a local climate organization and climate advocacy i guess it, it, it didn't really dawn on me like what it was all about at the time but and what i was getting into but reflecting on it now i guess that was kind of my first exposure to to this whole climate advocacy world awesome that's cool i'm glad we gave you the introduction yeah, for sure <laughs> so i'd love to jump into into northern colorado climbers coalition and your experience as the president of the organization, maybe a little bit of the history. Do you know much about uh, about the origins of the organization? What was the impetus for it getting started? Was it born out of trying to solve a, an issue locally? Anything like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Northern Colorado Climate Coalition was started by my friend Cameron Cross. And what Cameron had done was taken over doing the horse tooth hang. This is back in like 2006, 2007. He was the last person to actually like run run this famous event for the last few years of it. And towards the end, it became noticeable him to him when he was interacting with the land managers that we didn't have like an organized advocacy group for the climbing population in northern Colorado, and that doesn't give like the land managers the best feeling that they're giving a consensus by letting Cameron cross put an event up kind of thing. It makes more sense if they're like working with an organization that has more community input on it. And that's really where, you know, the stimulus for starting the climate coalition came from was cam started this climate coalition to help legitimize the horse tooth hang and help legitimize doing stewardship work around Horse Tooth Reservoir, which is arguably the most popular climbing area outside of Fort Collins. Yep, absolutely. That's that's yep. That's where I pretty much got started, uh, bouldering around there and and climbing up those little cliffs and like hiking shoes, like back in like 2007. 
<laughs> not really knowing what I was doing, and I'm surprised I walked away unscathed. But yeah, that's that's really cool. It wasn't uh, wasn't born out of like an access issue. That's what I hear a lot. Is you know, they climbers need to get access somewhere. They've lost access somewhere, so they need to get some kind of formal cohort together to make a stance for themselves to get an area opened or reopened. Yeah, totally. No, this is way more fun. This is for a party. Yeah, this is so Cam could legitimize the party and the insurance he needed to, you know, have all the top ropes up and all that kind of stuff that goes with having like an active outdoor climbing event kind of thing. Right. Um, so then from there, um, you know, Cam ran it and got it started and then Cam moved to France and his friend uh, Reed Woodford who runs Kent, uh, Kent mountain guides up in Estes park. Um, he took over as the president and then I can't remember when something like around 2012 or something, Kent Reed decided he wanted to step down and I had been kind of showing up to the board cause we'd been doing like guidebook stuff and I've been helping out with t-shirts and just kind of like helping out with logistics stuff. And the baton kind of basically got passed to me. It was like, well, no one else really wants to run this. So if like Reed doesn't want to do it anymore, then Ben, you better step up or it's going to be without leadership kind of thing. So that was basically how I jumped into it and kind of fudged my way through it from since then. <laughs> well, taking on a leadership uh, leadership position like this, I'd say, isn't an easy task. You know, you're kind of put under the microscope to to lead the charge here, right? And I was I'm wondering what your if you had like a vision for the organization at that time. Did you have stuff on the agenda or the docket? Like, okay, this could, this this stuff can be lined up next, and we could work on this, this, and that. Was there some kind of vision going into this at the beginning? Yeah, I mean, I definitely had a vision as far as I wanted the Climber Coalition to be more than just taking care of Horsetooth Reservoir because that was like initially what it was set up for and everything that we were focused on basically was like doing the Horsetooth Hang. And I definitely felt like the Horsetooth Hang was kind of counterproductive. It was cool to have like a festival kind of thing, but I felt like as far as like protecting and maintaining Rotary Park, that infiltrating it with like 200 climbers and all this impact wasn't really like productive as far as like protecting the park. And then on top of that, like they were trying to do like a competition in an outdoor climbing area, which in modern standards just like doesn't really work anymore because people have tried the problems for years and it just doesn't work compared to like an indoor setting for like a climbing festival. So when I took over, I was definitely like, we're going to stop doing the horse tooth thing and we're going to spend our time focusing on all these other climbing areas and try and spread our time out more rather than focusing on one event like all year long. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I think having that notion or that, that thought that, you are maybe taking two steps back by having all these people involved in, in, a, in a big party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And it was just an opportunity to like use this organization to do more than just the horse two thing, which is what I was excited about. No, that's awesome. So how far, how far have you all come uh, in the last, I don't know, it was about 10, 10 years ago or so. How do you, how far do you feel like this organization has come since you took over? I feel like we've come really, really far. We have way more notoriety in the community. We've made some really significant contributions to the community through trail days and community events and opening fixed anchor initiatives and all that kind of stuff. I think the climbing areas are really doing good up here. <laughs> you know, it's unfortunate that like Rotary continues to be an urban climbing area and we continue to have an infiltration of people that have nothing to do with rock climbing and are causing a lot of impact, but that's never going to change. But mm -hmm. as far as spreading out our time and our energy across 
most of the major climbing areas in Northern Colorado, I think we've been very successful. I think as far as being a community resource and a place for people to go to feel like they're a part of something bigger than just climbing in a climbing gym, I think we've been very successful with that. That's great. That's that's really great. Uh, Rotary Park, is that city of Fort Collins? Yes, it's technically Larimer County Natural Resources now. Oh, the county. Okay. Yeah, that's the county. And then most of Horsetooth is the county, but then there's like the Piano Boulders, which is actually Fort Collins city property. Now, is this trying to get my bearings here? Is that south of Horsetooth? Yes. Okay. South before you get to like Temperature Chamber. It's basically across, it's basically where you park for Duncan's. Yeah. It's those smaller boulders up the hill. Totally. Yep. I remember now. Definitely. Since we're speaking about land managers, um, I didn't know you, there was, the county was involved here. I am assuming um, that the cracks and boulders around Northern Colorado are largely on Forest Service land. Correct. Yeah. The majority, probably 90% of our climbing areas are on Forest Service land. Nothing, nothing with the Park Service and nothing with the BLM. Is that right? Not BLM, but we do have climbing areas on DOW land, state state wildlife trust land, yep. which is managed by the Department of Wilderness or Wildlife Department of Wildlife. Yep. And uh, yeah, they they're a totally different entity in themselves for sure. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's perfect. I was going to get into that here in just a sec. Um, well, starting with the Forest Service, um, since ninety percent of the climbing resources around there are on Forest Service land. Could you put some color on how you've cultivated a re- this relationship with this agency? Um, like going to them, like making sure that they know that the Northern Colorado Climbers Coalition is for real and you guys can be trusted to be stewards of these climbing areas and resources that are on that are on their land. Are there climbing management plans involved here, MOUs, anything of that nature? Yeah, it's unfortunate that we do not have a stronger relationship with the Forest Service. We've reached out extensively over the years. We are definitely low on the totem pole of interest of them. The clear message they have sent to us is that 100% of our trails and our climbing and our access points to get to our climbing areas are technically not allowed or illegal because they are all social trails. So we're not allowed to have like trail events We're not allowed to have community events to like upkeep these areas. We've had a couple interactions with them about helping them do some random chores around the Forest Service, like hauling out a trailer once. And there's been talk of doing kiosk signs uh, to try and, you know, give people information about the climbing areas and put up wag bags. But we have not a lot of successful getting things fulfilled with the Forest Service Department, whether that's their lack of budget, their lack of time, their lack of interest. But we definitely have a giant hole with the Forest Service for years now, which is really unfortunate. Wow. That is probably the complete opposite I, th- <laughs> I thought you were yeah. with. No, it is. No, it's so sad because when you look at relationships we have with Mark Coughlin at Larimer County Natural Resources and the relationships we've built with Lori State Park and the land manager of the city of Fort Collins that we've done work in the Poudre Canyon, um, we have all this excellent advocacy work that we've done. Um, we just can't seem to get that same level of input from the Forest Service. And honestly, it's because it's it's a lot of bureaucratics for them. And just to get on the waiting list to be considered for one of our trails to be legitimized or one of our climbing areas is like five years. Wow. To even get on the wait list. Wow. So they're incredibly backlogged. They're incredibly, you know, under or under budgeted and underfunded and they have so much to deal with with hunters and campers and all the stuff that goes in with taking care of their trails. And then once you look at things like 
the Cameron Peak Fire <laughs> and all the stuff the poor Arapaho and National Forest is having to deal with with that, like climbers are very, very low concern. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it seems to be the, the the cliche or the typical federal agency problems, understaffed, yeah. underfunded, and dealing with the multitude of, of things. And, you know, what I've learned from other folks is trying to get on the forest services, like good side, just asking like what you can do for them, not what mm-hmm. they can do for you. Um, but man, that's such a bummer to hear. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but I mean, you can always look at, at two sides of a coin, you know, on one side, it's a bummer. We can't like have a massive trail day at the palace. Mm-hmm. You know, which is like hurts me in my soul that like <laughs> I've been in charge this long and we haven't had a trail day at the most popular sport climbing area. That being said, we've had plenty of under the radar trail days at the palace and have lots <laughs> of good advocacy work that we've done on our own with guerrilla tactics. And <laughs> that seems to be kind of the deal with the Forest Service is like, as long as we keep our head down, kind of stay to ourselves, do our own thing, don't cause big issues, then we kind of just do our own thing. But they're definitely watching. We've tried to like have a couple events where we didn't like clear it with the Forest Service and they sure found out about it. And they threatened that if they saw anyone with pickaxes or shovels or trail working tools, they were going to ticket people. Yeah, like they said we could be out there picking up trash and doing things like that. But yeah, any sort of trail work or upkeep of the access points to the climbing areas are big no no right now. Mm-hmm. Wow. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, I know personally that putting shovels in the ground, you can't. Yeah, on their watch or under their rules and guidelines, you can't technically go do that um it takes environmental reviews and all sorts of red tape to to get something easy like that done unfortunately but maybe on the brighter side we could talk about parks and wildlife your relationship with uh those folks in lori state park we haven't discussed uh climbing in state parks too much on the show i have i did a little while back with a gentleman in, in texas where a lot of climbing happens in state parks and we usually talking about public lands private lands on on the show but i'm curious to know how how climbing is managed in in lori and what that relationship is like how does that differ from maybe not working with a federal agency very closely yeah oh my gosh it couldn't be more of a polar opposite scenario (laughs) um and mainly yet again it's the scenario where we have a climber on the inside we Uh, have um the head of the trails, um, trail work, trail supervisor guy is a guy named Cameron Landis. And years ago, I think back in like 2012 or 2014, like Cameron Landis contacted me about working on starting a fixed anchor initiative at Lori State Park to like try and get some more roots in and put some bolts in the wall. Um, So we worked with Cameron and the superintendent at the time who has changed now. I think it was Larry something back then. But um, yeah, we worked with Lori State Park to get a totally working fixed anchor initiative where any climber can put an application in for a new route that gets reviewed by the state park and reviewed by the Climber Coalition. And then the Climber Coalition is happy to donate all the hardware and um, oversee all the installation process and it's been a great program. And I think there's well over 30 routes up there now. I'd have to look, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah. And as far as like having trail days and doing, um, stewardship stuff, they've been totally helpful to a ridiculous level. I mean, The last time we were up there, they let us like build these amazing landing platforms for a couple of the boulders that have been having erosion issues. And then before that, like this giant tree fell down in one of the major like bouldering areas where like the vices and ode to failure. And it was basically like blocking all the climbs there. And like 
Cameron didn't even like wait for us to have like an organized event. He just got out there by himself, like like giant chainsaws and these crazy rope systems with his buddies. And they like chopped up this giant tree and hauled it all out of there. And yeah, I mean, they are so proactive about having climbing in the park and uh, they've seen an increase in the user group an increase in day passes people buy the guidebook there at the at the visitor center so i mean i wish we could get half of that out of the forest service It'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's some serious initiative there it always yeah. helps to have a fellow climber on the inside like you said for sure and we've had that with the forest service too we've even had people at times over the years like trying to grease the wheels but there's a lot of pushback, a lot of like old ways of thinking about things. And it just seems like Arapahoe National Forest is just like really conservative. But it's hard for me to push it too, looking at what's going on like outside of Denver and Clear Creek and the bolting moratoriums and stuff like that. So it's, it's kind of okay right now that we're off that radar a little bit, in my opinion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, you know, Colorado Parks and Wildlife, they're not going, they're not subject to the same kind of environmental reviews and everything to put those shovels in the ground. Do you know how that operates at a state level? Basically, we pitch it to Cameron, Cameron pitches it to the superintendent and it happens. Yeah, I mean, we put up like a whole new sector. It was like 2000, spring of 2019 with like eight new routes and an entirely new wall that was like relatively close to like a major trail system, but we still got it approved. And the whole time I was like, Hey, you know, Cameron, as soon as we get these routes in, like, like we want to do a trail day and I, want, I need like an event, like we can get people up there. And Cameron just replied like, nah, I don't want to deal with it. We'll just handle it on our own. And he just like <laughs> brought his trail guys up there and they made these like amazing, like four switchbacks right down to the base of the cliff and put signage in for us and everything. And wow. It was just too easy. Nice. And he's still, he's still working there. Yeah. Cameron's still there for sure. Yeah. We need to get up there and fix a couple of bolts actually. Yeah. I, I, was there much, uh, when did those 30 routes like go in? Cause I went up there to go bouldering, but I don't think I ever roped up while I was up there. And this is, you know, pushing 10 years ago. Yeah. I feel like we started it in like 2012 or 2014. I feel okay. like. Yeah. A little after I left. Well, back to, back to the forest service and the camera peak fire. I, that was a uh, kind of a, a big topic I wanted to talk about tonight. First, I, I just uh, I just read a little bit about the little read a little bit more about the Cameron Peak fire, and it was first reported in mid mid August last year, August twelfth or thirteenth. I think it was the thirteenth. Yes, exactly. I will never forget <laughs> a day that'll forever live in infamy, right? Oh yeah. Um, was one hundred percent contained by December second, and then it wasn't considered fully controlled until until a couple of weeks ago. Like, I think that's crazy. so. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, insanely massive fire. Yeah, I mean, it, it now holds the award for the largest fire in the in the state history. Right. So, how many how many of your climbing areas were right in the crosshairs of that of the fire? How does uh, how is this panning out for you guys? I mean, well, to just answer your question off the bat, um, this was all the western part of the canyon. So, you know, a lot of people consider like the palace and the crystal wall and the narrows, like the main part of the canyon, because that's like closer to Fort Collins. But there's like a whole nother sector to the canyon, which boulders have known about for years, which is everything west of Rustic up to Cameron Pass. And now there's like a lot of really good route climbing up there, too, but it doesn't see nearly as much traffic as down at the palace and stuff, but pretty much every single major area west of Rustic got hit in some form or another, unfortunately. And that impact went from 
you know, a couple singed trees to like all the way to like boulders exfoliating and all the soil being turned to sand and stuff like that. So it was definitely hit or miss, but when it hit, it was, it was really bad. Now, that being said, you can still look at it like two ways. I mean, from the climber standpoint, like all the young punks that I know, like they're all excited because most of the climbing is fine. The bolts are seem like they're generally fine. All that, like you can still go to your proj tomorrow and climb on it. That's fine. But like the entire landscape is completely changed for generations. I mean, just wiped out like entire hillsides and perfect ponderosa pines are just nothing but sticks anymore. And to me that, that really hurt because it's been like my favorite place, my favorite climbing area of my life basically. And it definitely will never look the same for my lifetime for sure. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, going to the South Platte and seeing the, you know, the fire, uh, what was that? I forget. I'm, I'm blanking on the name of that fire from back in the early 2000s, I think. Um, yeah, seeing, I mean, there's still years to go down there to get things looking back to what it was. It's going to take several lifetimes to get back. Yeah, I mean, we had High Park fire in 2012. So that was nine years ago. And nothing's come back except raspberry bushes. So. <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice thorny landscape. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. So I'm still trying to remember, get my bearings. I do remember Rustic and did it get us in Red Feather Lakes is north of, the, mm-hmm. of all that. Didn't, didn't really reach that point? It got really close. Okay. It was really touch and go for Red Feather there in like late September, early October. It was, it, they called it like the thumb because it was this giant like arch of the, of the fire that like headed north through the Alpine and then turned due west and just started raging right towards Red Feather. And uh, luckily they stopped it and luckily not it didn't get to like a single established climbing area that I know of in Red Feather. Um, so that was positive. Oh man. Yeah. I've, uh, I've read a quite a bit about that. A grazing allotment crag looks incredible. Yeah. It's really, really good. Sees very little traffic too, but yeah, it's so nice and so good year round. Cause you can always chase sun or shade or whatever. Nice. Yeah, it's such good variety of trad and sport climbing and stuff. It's really good. Is are your name is your name on a lot of those routes? Putting those up? Um, I definitely put in a, a handful. Um, it's got history back to like the mid '80s. That's kind of hard to track down. Um, but Paul Haliger and his crew put up like a significant number of the sport routes there. And then everything else is kind of mixed between whatever my, my crew of five buddies that go out and bolt with me and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of my, one of my dream routes is up there and I've, um, dark is rising. Oh dude. Thing looks, I've watched, I watched your video of Jeff doing it like a hundred times. I mean, I don't think there's, this is just my opinion, man, but I don't think there's a cooler video of a single pitch route of trad climbing uh, since Heidi Wirtz and Front Range Freaks. I'll just go on the record oh, and just man, put that thanks, out there. Dude. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, that reads incredible. You should come up. I'll freaking give you a top row burn on it or a lead burn whenever. It's so amazing. Yeah, I will definitely be up there probably within the next year for sure. Um, well, any plans to on how to proceed? Are you, you going to try to remedy any of the damage that might happen to any trails or bolts or anything like that? I think we're still kind of in assessing mode right now. There's like a couple of sport climbing areas that we haven't looked at up close. Um, we just had a board meeting last week, so we're kind of working on getting a better, more comprehensive review of some of the fixed anchors because we haven't really re- reviewed that too hard, although I'm 99% sure they're fine. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, we're hoping to release that in like the first week of February with some better 
understanding of how much it actually impacted things. I mean, for now, things seem stable. I'm really worried about the spring. The soil is really unstable, and there's going to be a lot of rock sliding down the hills without any vegetation holding it in place in the spring. Yep. Um, and I think that's why technically most of northern Colorado, most of the Forest Service District is still closed to recreation technically mm. um, with very little enforcement, which is really strange for like <laughs> all the climbers and all the people that are getting out skiing and stuff because you're technically not supposed to be there, but no one's really enforcing it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if they're implementing that because they're worried about what's going to happen in the spring. So they already have it in place and they can start enforcing it if it gets really sketchy or something. But I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't realize it was all all closed still. I had no idea. Yeah, nobody does. It's really interesting. We're all just kind of confused right now as to like why it's a closure and why they're not kicking people out and what their plan is. But I, I think they're just figuring it out as they go too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. You gotta, yeah. You just gotta proceed with some patience there, but <clears throat> well, besides this giant fire, maybe a uh, rough relationship with the forest service, what other issues or projects have you, or, uh, usually on the docket, like year after year, are you trying to steward some trails, do some climber education? I'm actually wondering, like, what is the, how big is the climbing community there? It seemed fairly small. I mean, not small, small, but not that big. 10 years ago, there was like two gyms in town. There was like Miramont where I went. And then that uh, other smaller one off college, I'm forgetting the name now, but yeah, uh, not, I was like, what? Inner strength, yes. And uh, but it was like five gyms now or something, half dozen. I don't know. There's several more. Um, are you needing to really put forth a, a, a strong educational effort for a growing community there? Yeah, for sure. Um, we've definitely blossomed since 10 years ago, for sure. We have like three. I mean, we still, Miramont's still there, but they've had tons of upgrades. They're Genesis now but we also have Ascent Studio and Whetstone. So we're totally spoiled with like modern climbing facilities up here now (laughs) and uh, tons more climbers because of it. My guidebook I put out in 2018 didn't really help either. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, the climbing community is still fantastic. It's still like tight knit. It's, It's awesome. I have so many friends that like, move away to like other climbing hubs around the country and they're like yeah the climbing's really good people are right but man i miss like hanging out with the fort collins people and i don't know why it's such like an open accepting vibe up here um but the we still seem to like stay out of like the snarky attitude driven world of rock climbing and people are just supportive and people are happy to help as far as like education, you know, it's, it's been tricky with COVID and everything. Not having community events is like our best way of teaching people. Um, we're trying to like be more proactive this year on social media and stuff about ways people can be proactive on their own since we can't have group events. And honestly, I think that's really the way forward for stewardship is educating people so that they don't have to go to an event. They can just recognize stewardship issues on their own and kind of do little things along the way to help the process. But yeah, we're excited that we're going to like fulfill our project from last year that kind of got ruined by the fire a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. You said 2020 was kind of a dud. Yeah, totally. Uh, We had stuff going until the fire and then the fire just kind of was the final nail in the coffin. But um, we're going to get our uh, steel carabiner initiative going at the major climbing areas. Um, We got a bunch of community donations from a GoFundMe account. um, And we've already bought enough hardware for like 80 routes. 
So we're going to start doing that this Sunday. We're going to start installing steel carabiners and all the chain anchors at the major areas like the Palace and the Crystal Wall and the Narrows um, to add a little bit of convenience, but mostly to add safety so that people don't have to deal with the confusion of threading anchors and all the safety and danger concerns that happen with that. So I'm trying to picture, like, what is that carabiner like is it like a mussy hook kind of thing or just trying to we didn't do mussy hooks on this round we're going to do mussy hooks on the next round we were waiting for an order to get fulfilled but these are like standard perma draw steel carabiners gotcha um that we're going to place at the anchors and put some zip ties on it to try and discourage people from stealing them and all that kind of stuff. But we got such a good community reaction from the GoFundMe page. It was awesome. People donated tons of money. So people are obviously excited to make this a reality and finally going to get the steel on the wall this weekend. Nice. Well, yeah, I mean, you said like, yeah, safety concerns maybe. Um, I'm sure I mean, the palace, that's like you said, the, probably the most premier spot around there. I'm sure those anchors get hit hard a lot. They do get hit hard, and it's really, I mean, it's really the, the the learning grounds for everyone around here. Right. I mean, people go to Duncan's and do their top rope thing at Duncan's, but then generally when they start lead climbing and doing stuff like that, they're going to the palace. And that miscommunication between the belayer and the climber at the anchor with first-time climbers trying to thread anchors and communicate with their belayers is notorious for having accident scenarios. So we thought this was like a really nice gesture and a really good thing to do for the community because it adds safety, it adds convenience. You can climb more routes more efficiently and there's no discrepancy between the climber and the blair. You just clip two carabiners and lower to the ground. It's just like the climbing gym. Seems like a worthwhile project to us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because I want actually there's a question I just thought of. Um, well, I think the narrative hasn't changed since since I was there. That's exactly what I did. My buddy and I built some top rope anchors over at Duncan's, and then my first couple leads were at the Palace. I'm forgetting nice. there's like a ten, there's like a five ten there, and a five nine. I can't remember what they're called. Probably um, monstrosity. Monstrosity. And, uh, yep, that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Churchill Rejects was probably the nine. Is that is that like uh, like Looker's Left? Yeah, right to the left of Monstrosity. Yeah, yes, that's it. You nailed it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I like I'm I'm doing that more and more, just lowering lowering off an anchor uh, instead of you know going off, take untying the knot and going on rappel. It seems to be pretty coming more of a standard and i wanted to actually get your opinion on where you all might stand on that and it sounds like you're definitely encouraging that new kind of maybe new school kind of ethic yeah i mean we're so old school in the united states you know like if you look at what the (laughs) europeans have been doing for like 10 or 20 years you know like of course it's not necessary a ring is totally good at the top of a climb but all the europeans know that clipping and lowering is so much safer and easier. So they've been doing that for a long time. Mm -hmm. And here in the United States, we've been doing it the elitist way. I mean, if you climb 512 plus or 513 or 514, hell yeah, there's carabiners on the anchor. Like those guys aren't going to waste time threading an anchor. You've got to be kidding. (laughs) You got to go home and take off their knee pads and yeah, whatever else. But yeah, I mean, so that's what I noticed, you know, me and my buddies were like at the hard routes and they were like, oh, we have all this convenience. And then you go to like the five nines and the five tens and the people that like don't even know what they're doing are like, they're threading anchors and shit. So like, it seemed like a no brainer to me. And it was really just a, a cost thing. And once we got enough funds generated, all for it, for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Do you, uh, do you guys write grants at all? Do you tap into like GoCo funding or anything like that? Well, we haven't generally, I mean, we're, our, our costs are pretty low over the years. I mean, we pay for website and t-shirts and like come up with funds for each event. But other than that, we 
pretty low. That's why we don't have like a subscription program or anything like that because just don't need a lot to operate. How about access issues? Have you dealt with anything getting closed or you wanted an area to open? I mean, most of this is on federal land, so might not run into it as much if it's on, you know, private or in a state park or something like that. Have you any access issues along the way? Yeah, I mean, it's think I think the best thing we've had is like designations. You know, like the piano boulders just to be used to be just a random pull out for years, you know, and then we talked with the city of Fort Collins and got a trail day there and got some kiosk signs and some proper fencing. And then we did the same thing with Duncan's with Larimer County and got Duncan's like established as like not just like a random trail up a hill, but that it's an actual climbing area and then it's being managed by the Climber Coalition and we put in, you know, bolted top rope anchors up there because it was causing all sorts of erosion issues. So, you know, those are our best like access things was basically like getting designation for stuff. Gotcha. Cool. Well, that's good. Right on. I feel like all stewardship needs are not created equal. Someone would probably be more excited to go out and swing a Pulaski around and put a shovel in the ground and build some trail, update some hardware than pulling like pulling weeds, pulling noxious weeds or something. Have those trail days that you had had, are those your most successful events? And how about volunteer recruitment or attention? Do you get a lot of people showing up and showing up time after time what does that look like for you yeah i mean generally most of what we do is trail work building steps clearing out brush pruning trees stuff like that stuff that people like with a variety of experience backgrounds can do you know it's really easy with the climbing gyms and csu you know, just between advertising across three climbing gyms and having the CSU climbing team and their outdoor program, we, we, we always have more people than we need. And we generally <laughs> bang out our projects in half the time that we're expecting generally, and which is amazing to the land managers because they love us. You know, they're just like, oh, you guys have set this like mountain of work to do. And then we bang it out in like four hours or something like that. So <laughs> they love us to death. And, you know, a lot of us are like develop, at least my circle is like a bunch of development addicts, you know. So like we're out doing trail stuff and bolting new routes and like doing all that stewardship stuff on our own. So like when we have an event, it's like bringing in the dream team kind of thing. <laughs> I just bring in like 10 to 20 of like the Crow's crew of developers and like they help educate smaller groups. They're super motivated on their own. They like to bust their ass. And so it's just, it goes so smoothly every time we have one of those events. It's always amazing. I mean, it, it, a lot of it comes from my motivation too. Like I have to be really excited on the stewardship. Like I'm not going to get psyched on pulling weeds. Like <laughs> I don't, I, right. it's hard for me to like take time out of my weekend to go and do that, you know, but if it's like moving big rocks or, you know, swinging the, the pickaxe and stuff, like that's kind of my wheelhouse. So like I get really motivated for that and that probably like helps stir everyone else's motivation. Um, assuming yeah uh, the, the leaders the leaders got to be psyched to get everyone else psyched i guess that uh, sure. that makes sense well right on i mean you guys are yeah i've been cranking away for a number of years doing some doing some really great work and i'm excited to see what you all keep doing here in the future i want to switch gears just a little bit to this other big task that you take on besides your job and family and and the northern colorado climbers coalition is You've written, I mean, how many guidebooks? Four, five. Oh my gosh. Depends <laughs> on how you look at it. But yeah. yeah. Um, some of them are print. Some of them are just like PDFs or something online. They're like more digital. Yes. Yeah, a couple of them. Definitely the ones on the Climate Coalition site. 
yeah. Well, there's been an explosion of development in recent years, as far as I can tell. I feel like it's grown tremendously since I left almost 10 years ago. And I think writing guidebooks is a pretty selfless act. It takes a heightened level of dedication and really seems to take time away from your personal climbing time. And every guidebook author I've ever met, you know, just, just a few, but they're always, I'm always just like, yeah, man, you know, thanks so much for putting this together, putting this out there. They're like, yeah, yeah, you're welcome. It, it was great. But, oh man, I am so psyched that that's over with. Do you, <laughs> do you, do you share that sentiment? <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's this heinous labor of love. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I have a slightly different outlook on it just because I am a graphic designer. Right. So like for me, it's like an art form. And a lot of guidebook authors are just like journalists or detectives, right? They just put all the information together, throw it off to the publisher and like, there you go. You make, you make it look right. Just make sure route A matches up with line A and I'm happy, you know? <laughs> and like, I'm all about that too. It's got to be functional. But then I have this whole other thing of like look and layout and, how the piece flows and I mean I've read hundreds of climbing guidebooks over the years so I'm super picky about them I hate crappy climbing guidebooks it like makes me cringe definitely relief at finishing it but it's also like it's it's something polished that I like really really wanted to like make people psyched with you know Mm-hmm. Like how I feel when I pick up someone's other climbing guidebook, like, oh, this is not only like a path to all these climbs, but it's also like motivation for climbing, like looking at the photos and getting excited for whatever your weekend plans are or whatever. Like that's what gets me psyched about writing guidebook. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and we'll touch more on the, all those great short videos you make uh, but you have one just on guide on guidebooking it's like one of the longer videos it's like i don't know 12, 13 minutes and it really gives a great insight and in how a lot of this works and and uh, i think it's i think it's more than just providing detailed information about a crag or boulder i think it could be considered a form of advocacy as well in the way that you're expressing a deep passion for a place through the pages of a book, but you're giving the history of the area, local ethics. And there's often a page or two on stewardship and how to respect the place where you're visiting there, right? So I it might, might be a stretch, but I feel like you're you're you are advocating for a place through this book. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely, for sure. I mean little dabblings of my climbing ethics or the local climbing ethics are all through there. And you can look at that from like the grading to the way the gear descriptions are to the way I talk about, like, I don't like calling things like highballs. Like I hate that word. I think it's stupid. Honestly, (laughs) like it's just, some rocks are bigger than other rocks. Some rocks are scarier than other rocks, you know? So uh-huh. that's in there too. I only say like four to five pads for highballs. I don't call them highballs and <laughs> stuff like that. So it's definitely all in there for sure, man. And it's definitely, it's definitely written in a way that I hope people get a feel for the ethics and the advocacy that goes on in the area. And Right. Yeah, I mean, trying to, I mean, you know this area so well, you could walk up to the spot, you know, with with your eyes closed, but trying to describe an area to someone that knows nothing about it, I mean, it's, that's got to be just really challenging. And you say in the video, like trying to be really descriptive and make, make these things sound cool and fun and not just like some, okay, yeah, just like go do this thing and go walk up here. I mean, it's just, just the level of detail I think is often maybe taken for granted in these books. Yeah, for sure. That gets overlooked a lot. And you know, the, the personality of the rock climb is very important to me. And I hate, you know, people that get trapped in grade chasing and stuff like that. And there's a, it's like, it's like guidebooks that don't include FA information. Like that shit drives me crazy. 
Because that's like such a big part of the story. I know like every V0 doesn't need like an FA credit and stuff like that. But like still like like not listing FA is like leaving out such a big part of the story. Because if you don't if you don't appreciate the generation before or appreciate where the name of the client came from, you know, like, <laughs> mm-hmm. I think you're just like distilling it down to a stupid number. That's just like a tick on your tick list, you know? And like, that's mm-hmm. just such a bland way of looking at rock climbing. And to me, it's like the stories and the people and how the climb came to be a thing is like the most interesting part about rock climbing to me and that's always kind of been the case that's why i'm obsessed with developing and stuff like that but yeah it's so interesting to include all that background info to me Uh uh-huh that's a great perspective to have to acknowledge those that came before and the rich history of people that were before you and now you're leaving your mark now for other people to read about at a later time. It's, you got a really great philosophy, Ben. I really, I really respect all that. Thanks, man. Yeah. So if, if you weren't creative enough between your graphic design day job, uh, running this organization, writing guidebooks, you also have a knack for videography. And I love those aesthetic climbing shorts that you put together. I mean, you got like the whole, a whole slew of them on Vimeo and I've watched a number of them. Like I mentioned that one earlier, dark is rising, but where did, where did this creative endeavor come from? Is this something you've done? Just like picked up a camera one day, like, Hey, I'm going to go film what we're doing. How did this come about? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's probably solutions, honestly. I mean, I always kind of like taking photos and, for me, like being a climber in Ohio, right? Like all I had was like the climbing magazine. So I was constantly, you know, like flicking through and looking at all these like incredible climbing photographs and getting really psyched about that. So when I came out here to Colorado and met Tom Blackford and a couple of the other guys, like Tom was carrying around like a video camera and was like saying, I'm making a climbing video. And I was like, what did talking about making a climbing video you're just some like scruffy college kid what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> but, you know tom had already done a couple like editing dv tape together and like so we just were psyched on like all the development that was happening at arthur's and pooter canyon and red feather lakes that we just started filming things and then all of a sudden we made like solutions and like that kind of just opened the door for me to like making climbing videos. And I started talking with guys like Mike call after that. And then Chuck Freiberger wanted me to do projects with him and nice. we went and did like friction lab or friction addiction together with Kurt Smith and John Sherman. And so it just kind of continued and I've just always kind of been it's like part of the development thing to me. It's like documenting the development. It was like where it came from. And then, you know, I started getting more creative and artistic with it as you try to like put together a feature length film. Like you can't just have <laughs> 10 second sends like back, back to back. So, right. Yeah. It all, it all is just kind of spun out of solutions, I guess. <laughs> well, you just name dropped some pretty, some pretty well-known names there. That's something to be quite proud of, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, the climbing community used to be a lot smaller. Yep, yeah, a for lot sure. Smaller. Right on, right on. Well, yeah, I'll be sure to share all that so folks can check it out and and um, provide all the information about your guidebooks and stuff. And yeah, I just love you, your uh, creative attitude towards climbing. You emulate just a love for northern colorado i mean it's i don't know if anyone that's more passionate about the place than yourself you know just talking to you today and reading up just you know doing my homework before the for the conversation here um i'm really excited to get back up there sometime soon and hopefully hopefully share some uh, share the rope and uh get some pitches in yeah buddy i might be coming down your way too i mean i could use some crested butte this summer that sounds fun there you go. Yeah, it's an awesome summer location. Doesn't get too hot. Um, 
So closing question I'd like to ask is, what is your definition of advocacy? It's a hard one. Advocacy to me is uh, just really caring about someplace that's special to you. You know, like we all can buy fancy plane tickets and fly to Rocklands and go to Fontainebleau and stuff like that. But it's really like the stuff that's like right in your backyard, the stuff that like you need after work or the stuff like you can do as a weekend warrior. Like you really think about it. Like those are the places that are like the most important. And once you have one of those places and you start like giving back to it, and seeing it taken care of or polished up or something like that it's just an amazing feeling and it's like addictive so like you get addicted to advocacy because you just like want to protect all your like special little places and like oh that sign looks so good and all those three steps up to the blaze spot are so prime now and yeah it just becomes like your home, you know, you're just taking care of your home, little projects at a time, kind of maintaining it. And, uh, you know, I just get so much out of doing advocacy stuff, not only for the protecting, but also then you, just by doing that, you teach people too, because people come and they want to, they want to give back to, and then they learn skills and then they go do it on your own. And it's just that beautiful cycle of the climbing community. It's so awesome. All right. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you helped me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time.